You are listening to sermon audio from College Creek Church in Annapolis, Maryland. For more information on this local body of believers, visit us online at collegecreekchurch.org or in person every Sunday at 11 a.m. Several months ago, um, I preached a sermon entitled, Who is Jesus? And in that sermon, I told you that he is God, the creator, sustainer, and savior of the world. I told you that he was our only hope, that he is reigning supreme even now in the heavens, and he is coming again to make all things new. And and finally, I told you that perhaps the most important answer that we can give to the question, who is Jesus, is to say that he is the Lord of my life. He is my personal savior. That's who Jesus is. Well, we're we're certainly not the first people in in the course of history to ask that question, who is Jesus, right? In fact, since his conception, people were asking that question of him. And, And a related question comes up in our passage today. The question we see today in our passage is, who do people say that Jesus is? is not who is he, but who do people say that he is? And that too is a question that's been asked since the very beginning of his ministry. People even today all over the world are considering that very question. Who do I say and who do others say Jesus is? And so every major religion in the world has to grapple with this question. Who do we say Jesus is? Every person, regardless of their belief system, must deal with this question. Right, so some people might say, oh, oh he's, a, he's a prophet, or, he, or he's a good teacher. Right, some people might say he's a raving lunatic. Some people might, might say he's just a peasant with a following. That's all he was. But no matter what your answer is, you must ask the question, who do I say Jesus is? When our our passage this morning, we find that question being asked, but not being asked by sort of the crowds, not being asked by the curious skeptics or even the doubtful religious leaders of the day. Rather, in our text, Jesus himself asked the question. And he's actually going to ask it in two different ways. He says to his disciples, first, who do other people say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? And the answers that we get to both are, are telling. And so I'm going to go ahead and tell you the correct answer um, here at the beginning, because I think what we want to do today is actually consider a couple of questions that come after that answer. And so here's the correct answer. Peter gives it to us in our passage, which we'll read in just a moment. He says, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ the son of the living God. That is an incredible truth. But it poses two follow-up questions for us. The first is this, how did you come to know that? And second, what are you gonna do with it? How did you come to know that truth? And what are you gonna do with the truth? And we wanna explore those questions together and the answers of them from Matthew chapter 16. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Matthew 16. We're going to read verses 13 to 20. We'll have the text up here on the screen um, as well. And if you picked up one of these Bibles on your way in, you'll find it on page 480. Matthew 16, 13 to 20, it says this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, 
he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. That first line in our text, it's easily overlooked. You've probably already forgotten it, but it's actually um, quite important. It says that Jesus and his disciples had found themselves in the district of Caesarea Philippi. Now that may not mean anything to you, but it would have meant quite a bit to the disciples and and to Jesus and really to, to all of the people of the day. Caesarea Philippi was not your typical Jewish city where we might think, you know, Jesus's ministry took place. In fact, it wasn't Jewish at all. Caesarea Philippi, which is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, is a Gentile region. Historically, that region is where the worship of the Baals took place. These foreign gods, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see over and over again in the Old Testament, the the Baals are being worshipped by all of the enemies of Israel. And in fact, they're far too often being worshipped by the people of God themselves. And so that's what Caesarea Philippi is until the Greeks come in and the Greeks come in and they conquer that whole territory and they set up a temple to their own God. The Greek God Pan is worshiped there. And there's still the remains of the temple to the Greek God Pan there. But now it's under Roman authority when Jesus is doing ministry. And Philip, Philip the Tetrarch has dedicated this city to the worship of Caesar, which is why it's called Caesarea Philippi. It's Philip's Caesar city. It's where you would go to worship the Caesar. So in this place, which is just rife with the worship of other gods, a place historically given over to God after God after God, Jesus is going to ask his disciples, who do people say, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The son of the living God. Right in a place that's full of the remains, of the remnants, of all sorts of dead gods. Jesus is professed the son of the living God. But think for just a moment about what other people are saying about Jesus. Specifically, the disciples are going to answer for the Jews. They say, here's what the Jews believe. The Jews believe that you are a predecessor to the Messiah, a predecessor to the Christ. They believe you're John the Baptist, come back to life. They believe you're Elijah, who was prophesied to come before the Messiah. They believe that you're Jeremiah, who they believed was going to go grab the Ark of the Covenant from Mount Nebo and bring it back before the coming of the Messiah. All three of the people they think he is are predecessors to the Messiah. In other words, they think you're special. They think you're from God, but they just can't imagine that you might be the Christ. 
but to the disciples, to Peter, who's walked with Jesus now for the last couple of years, he sees him rightly. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Truly, that is who he is. And so notice that Jesus doesn't refuse this honor. Rather, right, he accepts it. He even commends it, right? He calls Peter blessed for having professed it. He says, I am, I am the Christ of heaven, the promised Messiah. And just a quick note for clarity here, the word Christ and the word Messiah, they mean the same thing. Um, They both mean anointed one, but Messiah comes from the Hebrew and Christ comes from the Greek, all that to say, when, when, when Peter professes him as the Christ, we should also understand that he's saying, you are the Messiah, the promised Messiah of old, the anointed one of God. And, and who is it that is anointed in Scripture? If you, if you read through Scripture, you'll find three groups of people that get anointed. They're the prophets, the priests, and the kings. And Jesus is all three. Jesus is all through. I'm reading through the, the book of Hebrews um, right now. And the central point of the, big, of the book of Hebrews is this. It's to reveal that Jesus is far superior to all of the glorious figures of the Old Testament. And specifically, we are told that he is a prophet that is far superior to all the prophets of old because while they spoke for God, Jesus himself is God. And then they say, he's far superior to all the priests of the Old Testament because they had to keep going in and making sacrifices year after year after year. And not just for their own sins, but also for the sins of the people, but not Jesus because he offered one sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice once for all. And then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he's far superior to all the kings of the Old Testament because all their kingdoms crumble and fall but as we just heard earlier, right? Sam read it for us in our call to worship. His kingdom is a kingdom that cannot and will not be shaken. Jesus is the Christ of heaven, the anointed one of God, our eternal prophet, priest, and king. He asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living living God. And Look at Jesus' response to this incredible confession made by Peter. We find it in verse 17. Here's what he says in verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see what, you see what Jesus is doing here? He's, he's kind of having some fun with Simon's name, with Peter's name. Right, so if you look at the verse right ahead of it, he is called Simon Peter. And now in this verse, he's called Simon Barjona. And if we go to the next verse, he's going to be called Peter with actually a great deal of emphasis placed on it. So here in verse 17, he says, I'm going to call him Simon Barjona, which means Simon, son of Jonah. It's the only place in all of scripture that he's called by this name. It's right here. The only place. What is he doing? Well, Jesus is drawing a distinction between Simon's earthly father and his heavenly father, right? His earthly father, his flesh and blood father may have been a really good father, maybe, but he was unable to reveal to Simon the truth that he has just confessed, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. He says, God, 
God is the only one who could reveal that to you. Only our Father in heaven. You can study all you want. You can read and you can analyze, but at the end of the day, if you have professed Jesus as the Christ, if you have declared him the Lord of your life, you have only done that because of the work of God in your heart. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. In fact, the the gospel of John makes this abundantly clear. In John chapter one, it's, it's talking about the coming of Christ into the world. And it says this, he, that's Jesus, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came into his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, right? Those born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The world didn't recognize him. His own people did not receive him. Flesh and blood failed to understand him, but it was those who were born not of flesh and blood, but born of God who believed in his name, right? Because unless the spirit opens your eyes to believe, you will not receive him. It's confirmed for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2, 14, it says this, the natural person, that is the person without the spirit of God, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Flesh and blood find the things of the spirit, foolishness and folly, but the spirit of God gives discernment to the people of God that they might see and understand and believe. And and even more than that, he gives us the power then to walk in obedience to the things of God. That's what we see in our, our passage here. Basically, we're told that Jesus is the Christ of heaven. He has been um, revealed to us by our Father in heaven, and now he has empowered us in the kingdom of heaven. Let me just show you that in verse 18. Here's what he says in 18. And I, Jesus talking, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus is the Christ of heaven. He has been revealed to us by our father in heaven and he has empowered us for the work of the kingdom of heaven. Now, now clearly, What's happening here is something special going on between Peter and and Jesus. So I just want us to understand that. But at the same time, I want us to understand that all of us, all of us who have professed Jesus as the Christ, as the son of the living God, all of us who have professed that Jesus is the Lord of our lives, we've all been empowered in the kingdom of heaven. But we also need to understand the unique position that Peter is playing uniquely because he's the first to confess this. And we need to understand the position that the, that the apostles hold in all of this because the apostles, in essence, they all profess this at the mouth of Peter. And so part of what's happening now, we need to understand part of what's happening is Jesus is still kind of playing with Peter's name here, right? So he says this, 
Peter says you're the Christ, that is you're the anointed one. Jesus says you are Peter. Now the name Peter means rock. And so he says to him, so he says, you're the Christ. That is, you're the anointed one. And Jesus looks back at him and he goes, you're Peter, which is to say, you're the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church, right? Peter, by, by virtue of his confession, has been granted this, really the special role in the building of the church. Let me see if I can explain this a little bit. Before we get into Peter's role, we need to understand the role of the apostles as a whole. So look with me, if you will, at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, it says this. He's talking about us, and he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. And so, so we, Christians today are told that we are members of the household of God, more specifically, that we're being built into the temple of God, this dwelling place for God. But what's the foundation? Verse 20 says the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. So, so all the apostles and, and the prophets too, they're, they're all rocks and they form the foundation for the church. But, but most important, what's the most important stone in the whole building? It's Christ. It's Christ, our, our cornerstone, it says. And so we're not elevating Peter too far. We're not saying that Peter is the cornerstone. Christ is the cornerstone. That is, he is all over scripture. He's called, he's the cornerstone. He's the one who holds it all together. Here's what we're told. Actually, it's prophesied. Psalm 118 it says this, Psalm 118, 22 and 23, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it was marvelous in our eyes. And Jesus takes that prophecy and he ascribes it to himself in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke. And then when we come to the book of Acts, Peter also says it of Jesus. Peter in Acts chapter four says this, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Christ is the cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets are the foundation. And Peter stands in this place of importance among the apostles. Why? Because he's the first to confess him as Christ. And so he becomes the first to preach this salvation to the Jews in Acts chapter two. And when the gospel spreads out to the Samaritans, it's Peter along with John in Acts chapter eight that bring the Holy Spirit to them. And when the gospel begins to spread to the Gentiles, it's Peter who goes and has an encounter with Cornelius, this Gentile, and, and brings him to salvation. Jesus is building his church. And because of Peter's confession, it is being built on his ministry, but not on him alone. Right? Because all of the apostles form the foundation. 
And, and we play a role in this as well. All who confess Christ are being built together into this temple, right? We are stones. You're a rock in the building that is the temple of God. This is actually what Peter himself says in 1 Peter 2. He says, you, Christian, you yourself are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are being built into the temple of God, his spiritual house. The apostles and the prophets are the foundation. Christ is the cornerstone. And all those who confess Christ are being built up into this incredible, glorious temple. And here's why that matters today. This building isn't complete yet. And we're the next layer on the wall. And so the next generation of believers is being built on us because we're the next layer on the wall. It means we have to be stable and steadfast. We have to be sturdy. We have to stay rooted in the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. We have to stay connected to our chief cornerstone so the whole thing doesn't fall apart. I've never built anything with actual stones, but I've built plenty of things with Legos. And let me tell you, if you're building something with a Lego and you don't connect that column with the cornerstone, that side piece, so they're all connected together and you just let one sort of row of single Legos be there, it's just gonna fall over and the whole thing is gonna collapse. And if you try to build a Lego set, you know the best way to do it? Get one of those big flat pieces at the bottom as you can put, make your walls all the way around your house on that one, on the foundation. Don't just build random walls, build it on the foundation. And so we are the next layer. And so we have to be rooted in our foundation, the prophets and the apostles, which we find in the word of God. And we stay connected to our chief cornerstone who holds the whole thing together, stable and steadfast, sturdy. Why? Because the next generation of the church of God is being built on you. You have been empowered in the kingdom of heaven. And then he says this in verse 19. He says, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so just bear with me for a moment because it's a difficult verse. Um, it's made more difficult because it's really a poor translation that we have here. Um, so what's hard about it is the way the Greek is written is not a way that we can easily translate into English. And so we translate it kind of weirdly every time. So I'm gonna tell you what I think is a better translation. If we look at the actual Greek, it would be this. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So Jesus is saying to the apostles, not just to Peter anymore. Ultimately, he's saying this to the church as a whole. You have the authority on earth to declare what is true in heaven. Specifically, he's talking about our declaration about whether or not a person is a follower of Jesus or not, whether or not a person is a Christian. He's saying to the church, but right? he's saying to those who have confessed Christ, 
I'm giving you the keys on earth to be able to declare the truth of heaven about the kingdom of heaven, about who's in it and who's not in it. So let me just show you a couple other places in scripture that I think help us understand this verse a little bit better. There's three questions that I think are important for us to ask. It's this, who did he give the keys to? What is binding and loosing? And is there another set of keys? These are the three questions. Okay, first question. Let me just read actually from Matthew 18, and then we'll talk about those three questions. So Matthew, so we're just two chapters later. Matthew 18, this is what we read in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven first question, who did he give the keys to? Well, I'm sure you noticed that the exact same phrase is used at the end of this passage in Matthew 18 that we saw about binding and loosing in 16. And who has the authority to bind and loose in Matthew 18? It's not just Peter. It's not even the apostles. It's the church that he's, the church as a whole has been given the keys of the kingdom of heaven that people might be affirmed in their salvation and that it might also become clear who's not trusting in Christ. And so we don't use the, the keys to kick people out of the kingdom of heaven. We don't do that. Rather, what we do is we are affirming, we're declaring the truth of heaven here on earth. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. But what does binding and loosing even mean? Well, okay, so Hebrew culture of the day. You have rabbis, these teachers. Jesus is a rabbi, right? And they would create ways of living for their disciples. They would create rules that their disciples were supposed to follow. And those rules were called binding and loosing. So if something was like allowed for you to do, it means that it has been loosed unto you. And if something was not allowed for you to do, it means it has been bound unto you, binding and loosing. That's what's happened. So Jesus, our rabbi, has placed in front of us a way in which his disciples are supposed to walk, a way of living. We're called in scripture to walk in his way. And not only that, but to encourage and to correct one another to do the same. And the most fundamental piece of what it means to walk in the way of Jesus is to be a person who, when we become aware of our sin, we would repent of it. And that's what Matthew 18, right, is is all about. A person has sinned against another person and when it's brought up to them, they refuse to repent. And then it's brought up to them and they refuse to repent. And then it's brought up to them and they refuse to repent. And so the most fundamental thing that it means to be a follower of Jesus, to walk in the way of Christ, is that we would be a people who would repent of our sins when we become aware of them. And so what happens if they don't repent? He says, here's what what you do. 
You have the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Treat them as, as a Gentile or a tax collector. That is, treat them as someone who's not a follower of Jesus. Let them know that what is happening in heaven, the truth of heaven, declare it on earth, that you're not walking as a disciple of Jesus. So we're not going to tell you that you're a disciple of Jesus. We're gonna declare the truth of heaven. So the process of binding and loosing, it isn't about removing people from the church. It's about declaring the truth of heaven on earth. So, so we then, as a church, we look in to each other's lives. If you're a member of College Creek Church, you can know this. There are a group of people who are looking into your lives and they are affirming that you are in fact a disciple of Jesus. If you're a member, we are affirming that you are a disciple of Jesus because we are declaring the truth of heaven here on earth by accepting you as a member of this body. Okay, but here's the third question. Is there another set of keys? Perhaps better stated, who has the, who has the ultimate keys? Who has the heaven keys? Well, we're told that in Revelation chapter one. Revelation 1, 17 and 18, it says this. John is writing, when I, John, saw him, that is Jesus, when I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys. I have the keys of death and Hades. Here's the thing, Jesus is the final holder of the keys. The church has authority on earth, right? Our job is to declare the truth of heaven, but he's the one who holds the keys. Jesus is. He's empowered us then to bring about his kingdom purposes here on earth. And so Jesus, the, the, the Christ of heaven, has been revealed by our father in heaven and has empowered us in the kingdom of heaven. And so hear me, if you have confessed Christ as Lord of your life, here's what that means. It means that you have received grace from our Father in heaven. God has looked upon you in his mercy and he has revealed to you an incredible truth, a heavenly truth, a spiritual truth, an eternal truth because he loves you. He has revealed this to you so that you might believe in Christ. And that same spirit, that same spirit who revealed it to you is now empowering you to be about the work of the kingdom of heaven. And that is a big call on your life, to be about the work of the kingdom of heaven. But you can do it. Do you know how I know? because the same spirit that revealed it to you now lives inside of you. And if that's not encouraging enough, let me just give you very quickly four pieces of encouragement from this passage. It's actually all from verses 18 to 20. Here you go. First, Jesus says, I will build my church. And so friends, he's the one who's building it. He's doing the work and he will not fail. He will build his church. 
And it is just an incredible and amazing grace that he allows us to be a part of the work that he's doing, that he would build on us, that he would put the next generation of his church upon the shoulders of us is an incredible grace. But he's the one doing the work. And because he's the one doing the work, let me just say, friend, let him use you. Let him use you. Make yourself available to the work of Christ. Root yourself in the prophets and the apostles. Stay connected to Christ, our cornerstone. Let him use you to build his church. Secondly, he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is to say, death has no victory in the kingdom of heaven. Death will never overpower the church. Christ himself holds the keys to death and to Hades, to death and to hell. It's the same word when it says the gates of hell and then it says that he holds the keys to death and Hades. That's the same word. He holds the key and here's the truth. Death will have no victory over Christ. It will have no victory over his church. And if you have trusted in Christ, it will have no victory over you. And that means, friends, just abandon all else. Abandon all else and be about the kingdom of God. Because the very worst thing that this world can throw at you, your own death has no victory over you. So just abandon all else and let God use you for the kingdom of heaven. He's already won the victory. Thirdly, use the keys that the Lord has given you to love and not to judge. Don't spend your time looking for other people's sins to point out to them. Look instead for the evidences of God's grace in their life that you might encourage them. And all the more as the day of Christ draws near. And then as Galatians 6, 1 tells us, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness keeping watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. And finally, we're told in our passage in verse 20 that he charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So let me just remind you that that command has changed. It changed when Jesus died and rose again and when he commissioned his church to go and make disciples. So tell everyone, Tell of this incredible news that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, that he came and he lived among us and he became like us in every way except for sin, that he sacrificially laid down his life for us, taking our sins upon himself and he paid the price for them in full. And then three days later, he rose again with victory over death and sin and all the forces of evil. He is the son of the living God. He himself is the living God. And anyone who would repent and believe in him would be saved. Tell everyone and may Christ be so kind that he would build his church even in our midst. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for, for the, the truth of who you are. 
the truth of what you have done. Lord, we, we thank you that you are building your church and that you're using even us to do that incredible work. And so, Lord, we pray that you would keep us steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of love. Lord, that you might build the next generation of your church on us. And we praise you because you are doing just that. You have won the victory and you are spreading your victorious kingdom throughout the world. And so, Lord, with that victory in mind, make us hopeful and obedient unto you. We pray in your name. Amen.